All right, Desi. So we are at seven o'clock. Newark UPC Wonderful. is known as punctual. So here we go. Welcome everyone to good the evening. first live. Welcome. And uh, it's good to have Brother Desi Lugo with us. You all know him. And if you are a first time guest with us, I will introduce him momentarily. Um, welcome. You have, I'm sure, uh, perhaps seen our live broadcasts um, already where we have been premiering videos with you, mm -hmm. all our daily broadcasts. And we've been doing that now for, uh, well, we're now in our, I believe, eighth. Week. Eight. This is eight weeks we've been eight doing Eight weeks. And this is hard to believe that we're in, in the midst of all this, but that is where we're at. And so given that we see uh, this taking some time before it has resolved itself we decided to lean into this, and so we have revamped our schedule. So if this is your first time with That's us, right. we are still broadcasting Tuesday through Sunday. All right, so Tuesday through Sunday. Monday is a Sabbath, so we have one day off. However, we have a little different format. So Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday are all broadcast, but they're not all the same. So even every though we're broadcasting, exactly. So every day except Monday. Saturday begins the week for us. Thematically, Saturday begins the week. So Saturday and Sunday are pre-recorded broadcasts that we're trying to put different elements together, and they're premiered at 7 p.m. on our mm -hmm. Facebook channel, uh, on our Facebook Live, and on our YouTube channel. Monday is off. Tuesday is another broadcast. Yep. Thursday is a broadcast. But Wednesday, we are doing live where you can interact, you can ask questions. And uh, we're excited about that because we believe that engagement is important in this era. And so we're trying to create that. And then Friday nights are going to be Friday night with friends. And so we will have at least one, perhaps a several guests uh, that will come on and we will interview them. And each guests of those from, guests from outside of our local congregation. That's correct. Though right. I reserve the right to occasionally uh, spring somebody on you. So I, I'm, I'm not right. opposed to perhaps even interviewing one of you at a certain point, but we'll come to that. I, that's a little something I have in my back pocket. Um, but yes, primarily I'm looking to interview missionaries and, and home missionaries. I'm looking to interview church officials. I'm looking to interview evangelists. I'm looking to interview uh, pastors of other places. And uh, that way we can, we can hear from them, learn some right. things, have them speak to us. Each of the Wednesday night and the Friday night formats are going to be one hour though. So we will spend about 30 minutes in either on Wednesday nights, the Bible study, or on Friday nights, the interview, if you will, and then uh, about a half an hour of question and answers. And so that's where the chat comes in, uh, where you can put your questions, post your questions. And I have the ability, let me see if I can get over to a place where I can do this. Uh, so I have the ability, be nice when you chat, because I have the ability to put you on air, all right? I can put you on air. So let me find somebody right now. Um, Rick, uh, I'll put him on blast. He says, you oh, always this, on Rick. this ought to be fun. Uh, Rick, you need an O there, not an A. But anyway, so I can put your messages on, on there. See, I got you, buddy. I'm sorry about that. Really, I'm not. But anyway, um, so I can put your messages up and you can see those. Others can, can get involved with that as well. And so we'll facilitate question and answering. All right. All right, so let's begin. So speaking of speaking of Friday, let me just ask you this: Do yes. you have, and you don't, you don't have to say who it is. I'm just asking: Do you have someone lined up for this Friday? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Okay, so we In will fact, have a guest this Friday. Yes, absolutely. 
Lord Excellent. willing, and the, and the technology does not fail us. We will have a guest this Friday. They have already agreed right. to be with us, and we're excited about Do they that. know what they're getting into? Uh, I doubt it. Probably do we, not. Do any of us know what we're getting into? Do you no, know what you're getting no, into? I have no idea. Well, that's not fair. I have a little bit of an idea, because if you were on our earlier uh, test broadcast, at least I knew tonight was coming, which gave me plenty of time you know, to get nervous. Uh, last weekend, Stephen and I were testing this feature out. And so he says, hey, join Zoom. And he sends me a text with a link. And so I click on the link and I open up Zoom and like he and I do when we meet regularly during this time. And he says, hey, by the way, we're live right now. And so boom, without any sort of notice whatsoever, <laughs> we were broadcasting to Facebook Live. At least this time, I knew that we were going to be broadcasting. Do you All see right. the sympathy on his face right now? Yeah, I have None no sympathy. Whatsoever. None at all. I have. I, I do not feel bad at all. Sorry, I just don't. All right, so let me remind you, your small groups are critical. So New York UPC, yeah, absolutely. small groups are critical. Make sure that you're going to them every single week, 7.30 every single week, same time. Uh, it will alternate. This week we've been having um, the Connects. Next week we will start with our Fruit of the Spirit uh, lessons. Those are great to invite people to. It's really easy yeah. since it's online. If you need any pro have any problems with tech, contact the office. We can connect you with Tina Penn, who will give you tech support. Um, and also, if you're looking for somebody, if you're inviting somebody that you know, invite them to your small group. If you know somebody that that is looking for a small group, connect them with, with Brother Desi, our Connections Pastor, and he will be able to uh, give them a group that they can join. Um, if so we're someone very excited is about watching that. this and you're already connected with us in some ways and you're aware of our church website, newarkupc.info, and you're at least semi-tech savvy, um, we're using an application called WebEx. You can download the app for free. There's no cost to that. And if you go to our church website, you will see a card that says online small groups. And if you click on that card, it will give you step-by-step -step instructions not only on how to download the app, either on a mobile device or on your computer, you can also join just by phone if you don't have a video feature. And in addition to that, it will also give you all of the different small groups, the various numbers you need in order to dial into those different groups, the times when they're posted. All of that information is available on the card on our church website, newarkupc.info. And all you have to do is click on the online small groups card. All right. Um, by the way, Desi, before I go any further, I, I, I'm, I'm not understanding. Samantha's, Samantha says, I seem like the kind of guy to just push his friends into the lake to make them swim. Does this sound fair? Yes, Samantha, that is fair. That's absolutely true. Oh. Now, I trust Stephen. I don't think he'd hurt me, but he most certainly is the kind of guy who'd probably throw his friend off the dock to teach him to swim. I do believe that. Fortunately, I grew up in the Northwest swimming, so I knew how to swim before I came here. Uh, but there's a few things you didn't know. How to there's do. some we've, virtual we've... swimming we're trying to figure out right now. And I do feel like Stephen is kind of pushing me off the dock, but well, I actually we'll think we've, both, we've all been holding hands and I think we've fallen off the dock. Well, that's the next thing. It's... To be fair, either he pushed me off the dock or, you know, he fell in the water and grabbed me as he fell in and absolutely kind of went over with him. That's probably a little more accurate. We absolutely. fell off the dock we, together. We all fell off. That's that's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. All right. So. Desi already mentioned to you, NewYorkUPC.info, you want to pay attention to that. Everything, all information is there. One more word. If you want to interact tonight, you have to actually log into either YouTube or Facebook, all right? 
If you simply want to watch the chat or watch the stream and watch the teaching that we're about to turn to, you can do that at our live card at newarkupc.info, but you can't interact. And I do see one of us had noted, I think, Nurse Wendy, I'm assuming that Wendy Horn, that the messages mm -hmm. from YouTube are not showing up on the chat feature in newarkupc.info, only the Facebook ones. So I apologize for that. We'll probably have to play with the settings. What is most important is, is, of course, that I can see all of them, because when we get to the question and answer uh, The all-seeing Steve, as long as he can see all the chat. Yes, comments. exactly. If I can see yeah. all of them, then I can, can field your questions. Um, so let's open with prayer. And uh, this one, I knew this was going to take a little bit longer in the first one. Let's open with prayer, and then I want to turn the floor over to Brother Desi and, uh, and get into some Bible study. And then about 30 minutes after that, uh, after we begin, we'll then turn to your questions and answers, and uh, and we'll we'll try to we will be finished up promptly at eight o'clock. Each of these broadcasts we will run mm -hmm. for one hour. That way, all of you are able to plan your schedules and and work your routines. Routines are important in this era. Uh, it's real important that you build your routines. It'll keep your sanity. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank yes, you, thank Lord, you, for this Jesus. night. God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Lord, we live in a country where we have freedom. We live in a country that where we are blessed with the technology that, Lord, despite the separation, we're still able to come together. And we thank you. God, I pray a blessing upon our hearts and our minds. Prepare our minds and our hearts to receive your word, to learn, to grow, and to be engaged. God, I pray a blessing upon Brother Desi. God, in this new format, God, let your spirit override all that would get in the way. And God, I ask that you would bless us tonight. And I pray it in mm -hmm. Jesus' name. And everybody yell out, amen. I can't hear you, amen. but go ahead. Amen. Amen. Well, good evening, Newark family, and welcome back to our evening messages. And as Stephen has already said, we're trying something out new tonight. And we're going to try and do a live Bible study. And I'm excited to come to you tonight. This week, if you've been following our messages so far, we've got a theme of vulnerability. And we're talking about the idea of learning to be vulnerable with each other. And if you've been listening to the messages, our key verse comes out of Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. And so tonight for our Bible study, we are going to together do what I've called a slow read of Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you have heard me before talk about slow reads, then you know what you're getting into. If you haven't, when I say a slow read, what I'm talking about is exactly that. We're going to read Genesis chapter 3, one verse at a time, very slowly, and we're going to pay attention to the context, what is actually said in the text, what is not said, what's available to us, and we're just going to walk through this story that many of us, if not all of us, are very, very familiar with, and we're going to see what stands out to us tonight. And I'm going to be even more specific that tonight our focus on the idea of vulnerability. And so there's a lot in this text, and I, I'm not going to be able to get to everything. There's This is one of the first stories in the Bible. And so the narrative is extremely important because it's setting a foundation for all kinds of theological principles. So please understand up front that in the next 29 minutes or so, we're not going to cover everything that's in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to do an effort to focus on this concept of vulnerability, what was in the garden and what was lost in the Garden of Eden as we go through this story. It's also very likely that we won't even finish Genesis chapter 3. And so if that's what happened, then I encourage you either later tonight or in the next coming days to go back and continue to do a slow read, hopefully as you'll see me model in just a moment, 
and finish Genesis chapter 3. So without further ado, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to pull them out and follow along with me. And to make this easier for you, so you're not just staring at me the whole time while I'm talking about the scripture, I'm going to attempt to share my screen now. Let's see if I can get this to work right. And hopefully you should now be seeing text. Stephen, can you give me a thumbs up? Yes. All right. So you're seeing text. Excellent. I'm glad to see that. So tonight we're going to do a slow read out of Genesis chapter 3. And if you're following along with me, I am using the New Living Translation. Uh, I use multiple translations. If you're a guest with us, if you've not heard me teach before, I am a huge proponent of using multiple translations, not just one. And so please understand I'm using the New Living Translation tonight for several reasons. One, it sounds very good when read aloud. The New Living Translation was designed to be read aloud in public settings. We use this translation often in our church services. It's easy to follow along with, but this is by no means the only translation that I think you should use. So although I'm using this translation tonight, don't see this as some sort of ironclad endorsement that this is what you should be reading in your own time. Read the version of the Bible that gets you to engage with God's word. Now, before we get into chapter three, Remember that chapter and verse divisions were not original with the text. They were added later as aids to help us find our places as we read along in the biblical narrative. So I'm actually going to back up one verse. You'll see it at the very top of my screen. And we're going to start at Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, because this is a very important note that sets up everything that's about to happen in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, reading out in the New Living Translation, says, Now the man and his wife... Who are the man and his wife? It's Adam and Eve. The man and his wife were both naked. But watch this. They felt no shame. And that's an important concept to understand before we go any farther. Before we get to the events in chapter three, which again, I realize most of us are familiar with, understand that at this point in the story, at this point in the biblical narrative, Adam and Eve have been placed in the Garden of Eden. They've been put there by God. He has surrounded them with lots of lush vegetation. They are completely provided for. They are safe. This is key. They are safe. They have no fear. There is nothing for them to worry about. God has given Adam dominion over the animal kingdom. It's part of his responsibility to name the animals and to see after them and to be a steward of God's creation. And as part of that stewardship, God has provided everything they need. And he's actually given them very, very little guidelines as far as what they have to do in the garden. The one exception, which comes earlier in chapter two, which you can go back and read about, is that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It also says that there was a tree of life in the garden, and God puts no restriction on that tree. They are allowed to eat from that tree, but they are not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so as we end Chapter two, which is really another part of the narrative, but it says the, the narrator says that Adam and Eve are in the garden and it says that they're naked, but they felt no shame. And the word shame here is not just the idea of embarrassment. It's, it's embarrassment that's also coupled with fear. And that fear comes from the concern in Hebrew, that, that word that is used for shame is the idea of embarrassment coupled with fear. And it's the idea that there's concern over danger. There's concern over some evil that's going to be done to you. And at this point in the story, it's hard for us to even imagine this. Adam and Eve are naked, but they're not afraid. 
they're naked, but they're not embarrassed. They're and it, there's an innocence, if you'll let me put it that way, to the state that they live in, and they're not scared of anything. So let's jump into chapter three. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, and let's pause here for a second. That transition is important because it tells us that we've now come across some period of time between the comment and chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. How long was this time period? We don't know. I doubt it was the next day. But somewhere as Adam and Eve were going about their business and living in the garden, interacting with the animals, the serpent comes and speaks to Eve. Now, could all the animals talk? Is this a Narnia type scenario? We have no idea. There's all kinds of wild speculation about that. The truth is we don't know, and it's not important to this story. What is important to this story is that this serpent is now coming to talk to Eve, and the narrator makes it clear that of all the animals, the serpent was the shrewdest. The serpent was the most cunning animal in the garden. And notice also that Eve is not afraid of the serpent. She's having a conversation with this animal. And the narrative treats this as if this is totally normal. One day, he, the serpent, asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And notice that in the opening line of this dialogue between Eve and this serpent. The serpent starts by posing a question to Eve, but it's not an innocent question. The serpent is not asking a question because the serpent wants to gain information or learn something. It's a cunning animal. It's a deceptive animal, and it's trying to create doubt within Eve. And as you go throughout your life, when you hear whispers from the enemy, and they will manifest themselves in all kinds of different ways, but when you hear whispers from the enemy, many times, one of the first whispers you're going to hear is, did God really say that? Is that what God meant? And that's exactly what we see in this story in Genesis. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And Eve responds, of course, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It is only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now, if you do a slow read and you're paying attention, and later you can go back and read chapter two, God gave instructions to Adam, and these instructions were passed along to Eve, that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was found in the middle of the garden. But when Eve repeats these instructions to the serpent, she says that they are not to eat it or even touch it. And so somewhere along the way, extra instructions beyond what God had told them were added into the mix. Now watch the serpent's response in verse four. I'll scroll up a little bit. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So the serpent starts with, did God really say that? 
And the next tactic the serpent does is a straight up dismissal of God's instructions. You won't die. That's not true. The serpent relegates what God has said as to something non-important, to some untruth. It's a lie. It's a straight up deception. And then the certain appeals to e the serpent then tries to appeal to Eve's desire to know more. Perhaps it was her vanity. Maybe it was a desire for power. We often want things we don't have. And this is true both in the human realm and in the animal realm. You can look at a toddler and they can be surrounded by toys. And there's that one toy that's a little bit out of reach. And they're still, I shouldn't say toddler, I should say even just a small baby, an infant. And there's that toy that's out of reach and they haven't learned to crawl yet. And they can make eye contact with that toy and they're going to fuss and wail because they want the one that's just out of reach, even though there's five or six right in front of them. You can go by a pasture, that expression, the grass is greener on the other side, and you can find horses and you can find cattle and they'll be in a beautiful, lush, green pasture, and they are straining their neck as hard as they can between that barbed wire fence to try and eat a little patch of clover three feet on the other side of the fence, even though they're standing in a patch of clover. There's just something in us that always wants what's just a little out of reach. And so the serpent is appealing to this, and the serpent is talking to Eve, and he says, you won't die. God really knows what's going to happen is you'll be like him. You will know good and evil. Now watch verse six. The woman was convinced. So this tells me if Eve is tempted by this offer, then she had already spent some time thinking about that fruit. I doubt that the serpent turned Eve's attention to this fruit for the very first time. And it didn't take much to convince Eve that she really wanted it. In fact, all the serpent had to do was give her an open invitation and, and assure her that there would not be consequences. And it says the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. So Eve is looking at this tree with this fruit, this forbidden fruit, and it looked really appealing. It looked really, really good. And she really wanted that fruit. And she wanted the wisdom, or put another way, she wanted the power that she thought would be granted to her if she ate that fruit. And so she took the fruit, and then she ate it. And then this is an amazing part of the story. Look at the very, very next verse. Not next verse, next sentence. Middle of verse six, it says, Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. So Adam has been a silent character in this story up until this point. If you were reading this for the very first time, this would be a surprise to you. So far, it sounds like Eve is having a conversation with this serpent, and she's somewhere standing close to this tree, and the two of them are in dialogue, and the serpent convinces Eve that it's okay for her to take the fruit. Now, notice the serpent is a cunning animal, and everything so far has been portrayed through dialogue. The serpent didn't force Eve to take the fruit. 
The serpent did not pluck the fruit and hand it to Eve. The serpent did not disguise the fruit with some other food and trick Eve into eating it against her knowledge. The serpent had a conversation and through his cunning convinced Eve to sin on her own, convinced Eve to disobey herself. Eve is the one who took the action, not the serpent. And then after Eve takes the fruit and she eats it, the bomb is dropped. Adam was with her. Why was Adam not speaking up to this point? We don't know. Why didn't Adam argue with the serpent? We don't know. Adam has been silent, at least in the narrative, up to this point, which tells me that Adam probably wanted the fruit as well. This implies to me that both Adam and Eve were very, very tempted by this. Eve disobeyed first, but Adam was right behind her. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. So this again implies that Eve plucks the fruit from this tree. She eats some of it and then hands it over to her husband and he eats some as well. Paul picks up on this theme in the New Testament, which we don't have time to get into tonight in some of his writings. And it, Paul's feeling in this story is that Eve was deceived. Eve did sin. She did disobey but it's because she was tricked. Adam was in blatant rebellion. Adam was the one who had originally been given the instruction by God. Adam chose to be disobedient with his wife, which means, and this is hard to even grasp, there was a time in the human story, if even only for a moment, where Eve had disobeyed and Adam had not. And Adam chose Eve, Adam chose his wife over obedience to God. Verse 7, at that moment, as soon as they disobeyed, at that moment, their eyes were opened. Now, it doesn't mean in a literal sense, a physical sense, as if all of a sudden they were blind for the first time, their eyes are open and they can see, but it says their eyes were opened. In other words, their consciousness, they became aware of their surroundings. They became aware of their state. Verse seven, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So something happened as soon as they ate that fruit. Something mentally shifted for Adam and Eve, and they recognized this is wrong. Something's not right here. They were embarrassed of their state. They were embarrassed, and they were fearful. Because remember, this Hebrew word for shame is not just the idea of embarrassment. It's the idea of embarrassment coupled with fear. Now they're concerned something's going to happen. They are shamed at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. 
So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord called to the man, where are you? Now, in reading this story, imagine we're doing this for the first time. Whether God was physically walking in the garden or whether that was metaphorical for the time that each day God chose to come and visit with Adam and Eve, God as a character now enters the narrative for the first time directly. And he calls out to Adam and he says, where are you? In reading the biblical story, we know that God is omniscient. He knows all things. So it's not a surprise to God where Adam is. God is not looking for Adam because he doesn't know what's happened. God is not looking for Adam because he doesn't know where Adam is hiding. Adam's hiding behind a tree, in essence, at that point. And God calls to Adam and he says, where are you? Another way to say it, rhetorically, God was asking Adam, why are you hiding? God knows where Adam is. Adam knows where Adam is. Eve knows where they are. All the characters in the story know where everyone is. Nobody's actually hidden from the other characters. In saying, where are you? God is asking Adam, why are you hiding from me? Verse 10, he he referring to Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? So we have two questions here. Who told you you were naked? And then following right on the heels of that, before Adam can even answer, God asks him, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And this is the real question. God knows why Adam recognizes his nakedness. He's wanting Adam to confess that he has disobeyed. Like a parent scolding a child, you walk in and your child, your four-year-old has got a box or a stool stacked on top of a chair. And that chair is pushed up the side of your cabinets or the side of your refrigerator. And you walk into the kitchen and imagine your four-year-old is on top of a stool, on top of a chair, and they've got their hand reached up into that jar of candy on top of the refrigerator or on that top shelf. And as you walk in, they're pulling their hand out of the jar. And instinctively, you look at your child and you say, were you taking candy? Now, you know full well they were taking candy. You're not actually asking this for information. You're asking this because you want the child to admit their guilt. You want the child to admit that they're wrong. You want the child to confess to their disobedience and their mistake. So God asks Adam, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? What is the appropriate response at this point? The appropriate response is to admit that you're wrong. The appropriate response is to admit that you have failed, you've disobeyed, to use biblical terminology, that you've sinned. God is inviting Adam to confession. God is inviting Adam to admit his failure. But watch what happens. 
Verse 12, the man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Instead of admitting his error, instead of owning up to his disobedience, Adam, in a knee-jerk, fearful reaction, turns around and blames God and says, well, the woman you gave me, she's the one who gave me the fruit. Notice, he doesn't take responsibility for his action. This is like you catching your toddler, your four-year-old, on top of the stool, on top of the chair, reaching up to that jar of candy they're not supposed to be into. And, and you catch them with the candy in their hand and you say, did you get candy out of that jar? And their response, instead of saying, yes, I took the candy, is to say, well, it, it was already up there and, and my sister got some candy earlier. Instead of taking ownership for the fact that they're being disobedient. Verse 13, then the Lord asked the woman, what have you done? Now watch, God has invited Eve to confess. God has invited Eve to own up to her mistake. Here's a chance for Eve to be vulnerable as well. But instead, Eve turns around and says, the serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. So again, instead of taking responsibility for her own actions, Eve follows the leading of her husband and decides to point blame at somebody else. Verse 14, then the Lord God said to the serpent, now notice this time, God doesn't ask the serpent what you're doing. Notice this time, God doesn't, say to the serpent, what were you thinking? He goes straight to judgment. God is interested in reconciling something between himself and Adam and Eve, but we don't even see that opportunity between God and the serpent. Verse 14, then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly groveling in the dust as long as you eat, eating the dust, if you're following King James or some more literal translations. We know that serpents or snakes don't literally eat dust, but by being an animal that lives on the ground and has to crawl along the ground, they're going to get dust in their mouth. It's a humiliation thing. God has demeaned this animal and now put it lower than the other animals. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. God's pronouncing the judgment for this disobedience. I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. And in pain, you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. Notice the after effects of Adam's failure don't just fall on Adam and Eve. Now there's an after effect that falls on all of creation. The ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, 
you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from the dust, and to the dust you will return. You go back to chapter 2. God creates Adam out of the dust of the ground, puts him in the garden, and provides for him. And while there is work for Adam to do, it's not heavy work. It reminds me of Jesus talking in the New Testament about taking on his yoke because his burden is easy. His yoke is light. It doesn't mean there isn't work to do, but it's not overly tiring. But now as a result of Adam's rebellion, as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, their sin, their failure before God, now work is going to be difficult. And whereas once they were in a garden where all the food was provided for them, now they're going to have to work and they're going to have to work hard to find food. And it's constantly going to be a struggle between them and the ground. Now, I told you we were going to do a slow read. I read a little faster through the curses, and I don't have time to dive into all the implications of that. Because focusing on our theme of vulnerability, I want to scroll back up and starting at verse 7, I want to point out several things that are introduced here as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, as a result of their sin before God. If we look at verse 7, it says, at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt, notice this, they felt shame at their nakedness. And so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And so two things to point out. When sin enters the picture, when that vulnerability is broken, when that nakedness before God is stripped of its innocence, Shame enters the picture. The first thing that happens as a result of sin is that Adam and Eve feel shame. And immediately on the heels of shame, they feel the need to cover up. Up to this point, they were naked and there was an innocence to it. God had designed it that way. Look at verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Sin brought shame. Sin made Adam and Eve desire to cover themselves up. Sin has now made them hide from God. I'm going to jump down to verse 10. He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. Now listen to this statement. I was afraid because I was naked. Sin has brought fear into the picture. Up to this point, Adam and Eve are not afraid of God, but now they are. And then we get down to verse 12. The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. As a result of their sin, they're passing blame. And so it's like a row of dominoes where the first one gets tipped over, and then it just begins to knock over domino after domino after domino. This one little action, this one little defiance. This disobedience before God results in a whole cascade of problems that Adam and Eve could not anticipate. As a result of their disobedience, they experience shame. As a result of the disobedience, they now have to cover themselves. As a result of their disobedience, they're now hiding from God. As a result of their disobedience, they're now living in fear. And as a result of their disobedience, they're now blaming other people for their actions instead of taking responsibility. So shame, covering, hiding from God, fearfulness, passing blame on others, these are all the result of their act of disobedience. 
Their innocence has been stripped from them. They were once vulnerable and open before God, but that has now been completely removed. So in the last couple minutes, let's talk about how we reverse this. When we live in a life of obedience towards God, we are working to undo the damage of the curse of sin. And we will never complete this in our lifetime. And it's only by God's grace that we are saved. But as he fills us with his spirit, and as the Holy Spirit guides us, it leads us back towards God. And part of that process of coming back to God is recovering that vulnerability before him. And so let's just work this in reverse, starting at verse 12. Adam is passing blame on others. If you want to learn to live vulnerable before God, then you can't blame someone else. You have to take responsibility for your own action. Working backwards in verse 10, Adam is afraid of God. If you want to live vulnerable before God, it requires courage. You can't live in fear. Working backwards to verse 8, Adam was hiding from God. If you want to live vulnerable before God, you're going to have to learn to be out in the open. Let me scroll back up to verse 8. You can't continue to hide from God. And then going back to verse 7, Adam felt shame and covered himself. And this is the hardest step in that vulnerability process. If we want to be vulnerable before God, we're going to have to learn to be uncovered. Or if you will, to use the language right from this story, we have to learn to be naked before God. We have to own up to our mistakes. We can't blame other people. We have to do this courageously. We have to live out in the open before God. And we can't try to cover up and hide what we really look like. And in addition to God, we're also called to be vulnerable and open with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this week, our focus on this idea of I was naked, we collectively as humanity lost something in the fall of the garden. And now we have a chance to return to it. And it's hard to do. I'm going to stop sharing my screen now. It's hard to do. I, I'm not saying that this is easy. But if we want to live an authentic Christian life before God and before our brothers and sisters, then we have to work, if you will, kind of in reverse from the mistakes that Adam made, the same mistakes that we all make. And we have to learn to be vulnerable. How do we be vulnerable? We have to learn not to blame others. We have to learn not to live in fear. We have to learn not to hide from God and hide from others and even hide from our own feelings. And we have to learn how to live in an openness. We have to learn how to live, if you will, metaphorically with a sense of nakedness, a vulnerability, an innocence before God and our brothers and sisters. And this takes work. It takes patience. All of us fail at this. We often do not get this right. But if we don't want to repeat the vicious cycle of our broken humanity, if you want to live different from that, you're going to have to work in reverse through the power and the leading guiding of the Holy Spirit and allow God to begin to undo the steps of this curse in your life. All right, I've now gone 32 minutes. I stole an extra two minutes past my 30-minute mark. So if Stephen doesn't mind coming off of mute, he, I hope by this point, has some comments or questions to feed me so we can visit and talk together. Well, I've put out the request for uh, questions. I do not have any yet that have come in. And so as they are coming in, let me remind everyone 
that we are live and interactive on Wednesdays and Fridays. And on that broadcast, it's from seven to eight. So that's the first thing I want everybody to remember. Keep that in mind. So you got and, 15 uh, minutes to take advantage of this if you want. That's to. right. So I've got one question coming in. Let's have a couple more before I turn to that. Second is, is that we are live um, Tuesday through Sunday. We do a broadcast Tuesday through Sunday. So uh, at seven o'clock. So the start time is always the same seven o'clock. Wednesdays and Fridays, it goes for one hour. You said hour. We're, we're live Tuesday through Sunday, as in we're, we're broadcasting something. That's correct. That is Tuesday correct. Tuesday through Sunday, every That's evening correct. at 7 p.m. That's right. And uh, Wednesdays and Fridays are the one hour. The mm -hmm. Tuesday, the other nights are about 25 minutes or so. All right. So the first question we have uh, that I'm going to take here is from Scott Lucas. He asks, do you think that they had admitted their actions and apologized or repented to God if they had done this, his consequences would have been different. That's an excellent question, Scott. Arash kind of hinted at this earlier this week, and it's it's a good thought. Um, if I'm going to be a true theologian and I'm going to be straight with the biblical text, I have to admit we don't know because that's not what happened and the text doesn't tell us. And so I, I can't presume what would have happened. However, having said that, as I look at God's character as it's revealed through the rest of the biblical narrative, we see repeatedly where humanity fails over and over and over, and God calls people to a place of repentance. And when they confess their sins, he's merciful. They can find forgiveness. There are still consequences for their sins. But almost always the punishment is not nearly as severe as it would be under other circumstances. Scott, as a parent, you know, when your children are willing to confess, you catch a child doing something wrong and you confront them about it. And if in that moment the child will own up and confess and not make excuses and say, yes, I did fill in the blank action, often, in fact, the vast majority of the time, whatever consequences we we're planning to give them are not as severe as what we were probably originally thinking we were going to do. I know with my own children, we have a house rule that, especially if it comes to lying, if they get caught lying and they will own up to it when we call them on it, they're still in trouble, believe me. They are going to be consequences, but they are not as severe as if they get caught in a lie and then refuse to fess up to it. Then the consequences are a lot more dire. And so because we reflect the image of God as parents, I'm giving you my opinion. So as this is live on the internet. Please, please hear me say this is my opinion. I cannot prove this biblically. But yes, I do think if in that moment when God challenged Adam and he said, did you eat that fruit that I told you not to eat? If Adam in that moment, because you got a picture, Adam's hiding behind a tree. You, you got to read a little between the lines, but it says they hid in the trees. And so God calls out to them and they call back. So I kind of see Adam as speaking from behind the tree or maybe poking his head around and kind of talking to God. And, and there's this distance and he's put a tree as a physical barrier between him and God. And so I think, my opinion, if Adam had been willing to step out from behind that tree and walk forward and interact with God face to face and say, yes, I did that. I was wrong. I do think there would be consequences, but I suspect, suspect they would not have been as severe. 
I think it's still likely there would be a curse. I think it's still likely they may have even been kicked out of the garden, but I don't think that it would be as significant as what we see in the biblical narrative. Unfortunately for Adam and Eve, and if we're honest for all, pretty much all of us, when we're caught, usually we don't fess right up. Usually we don't take responsibility and ownership. So notice Adam's afraid, he's hiding, and then when he's directly confronted by it, he passes the blame. And the crazy part of the story is Adam passes the blame back at God. The woman you gave me, as if it's God's fault that Adam has disobeyed. Hopefully that kind of answers your question. Steve, if you want to weigh in, you're welcome to do so as well. Just add very quickly, because we have a number of questions. Uh, number one is take a look at the text, a close reading, a slow reading, as Desi has pointed out. See which verses in which... There is, and use different translations to bear this out, but see which of the various things that God describes subsequent to uh, the temptation and then the sin. Mm -hmm. See which ones use the word curse. See if they apply to every one of them. That is one insight that you could take a look at. Second thing is, is to consider the possibility uh, that in many cases, when God describes to us the consequences of our sins, it is mm -hmm. not necessarily that he has produced those consequences, but in fact, sin has itself produced those consequences. So one of the challenges is, is that many times, and you notice my two comments are related. So if, if, for example, some of the consequences the woman is to experience or the man is to experience are not a curse, but are in fact consequences that result from the sin, if God is describing it, it doesn't mean he's affirming it. He's simply saying, this is what you have produced by this your actions. payment for your actions. This is the results. Yeah. And this is very important. The reason I bring this up for further consideration is, is that many times people take Genesis 3 to be, this is what God now dictates. And I would argue that that probably is not accurate. This is what God now describes as the results of brokenness. And what we find throughout the Old Testament and the law and the New Testament yeah. and grace is God walking that back, God correcting mm -hmm. that error. For example, husbands and wives. Are wives supposed to try to domineer or control their husbands and husbands yeah. answer back in mm -hmm. domination? I think Ephesians gives us a picture that says absolutely not. No, that's not the way it's it's meant exactly. to operate. That's a result Correct. of the brokenness. And Correct. And I thought about that. I, I can't get to it tonight. We took 30 minutes. Notice I read half of Genesis chapter three in 30 minutes. This is what a slow read does. If we were to really fully explore this, if Steve and I were to have a dialogue together, maybe at some point we'd do that. We'd probably have to slot a good hour and a half, two hours, just seriously, just to walk through Genesis chapter three and all the ramifications of what there. And, and I was just kind of skimming the surface of several things because there, there's so much in this story. But it's an excellent question. Thank you for asking. All right. Let me uh, take you to another question, which is um, actually two of our children uh, have great questions. But let's start with one from Dan Lanciano. Did the okay. snake really have arms and legs? So, okay. Excellent question. And we've got lots of questions, Desi, so we need short answers on this one. You're going to have to punt on these so we can get a couple of other ones. Oh, in. that's not fair. I want to give him extra time. Yeah, I know, but you have to. You have if to. If you keep look hunting. at lots of artwork, many times it's depicted that way. So I could see why you'd ask that question. We have no idea. I'm so sorry, but the best answer is we just don't know. 
The, All right. The, the scripture doesn't tell us that he had arms and legs. What we do see as a curse on the snake is that it now crawls on its belly. So its mobility, and I'm being vague on purpose, its mobility has somehow changed That's right. as a result of its rebellion. Whether that means it lost arm and legs, whether that meant the snake somehow used to be able to travel upright and now must crawl on its belly, something changed with that serpent as right. a result of its rebellion. That's right. Yeah, we don't know what it was, but something happened to it. And then I have a question from uh, a little girl that's very near and dear to your heart. Her mm -hmm. name is Dinah. Dinah. Um, that I actually, know a Dinah. I actually know several Dinahs, but I think I know which Dinah this well, is. It's, it's the little cute one. I don't know about the other mm -hmm. Dinahs, but it's the little cute one. And she actually has a question that ties in also with someone that's not so little, though I will refrain from saying whether she's cute or not which is a question from Sister Betty Jones. They both are asking kind of the same thing. So let me give you both okay. questions and then you can tackle it. Maybe so I can Dinah would like to know, yeah. So Dinah would like to know if God can see everything and predict everything, then why did he put the bad fruit in the garden if he knew they would eat it? And Sister Betty comes <laughs> along and says, did not God already know they would sin before they ever chose to sin? So you can see how these two questions are... Um, they're not playing fair. You're getting punched from an elder and a child at the same time. One, two punch. So you but have kind of the um, same question. two minutes to answer it. So how do so you answer this, Desi? Two minutes to answer a question that would take an hour to unpack. <laughs> yes, thank you. All right. So I'm Sister Betty, you get to come along for the ride. I'm going to address Dinah and do my best to explain it to an eight-year-old. I believe most certainly that God knew that Adam and Eve were going to fail. They were going to mess this up. I believe that God knew this was going to happen before he ever created them. So why would God let that happen? The fruit, I heard someone say bad fruit. The fruit was not bad. In fact, it's a powerful fruit. The fruit was not bad. Their actions were bad. So why would God even put it there and then tell them, don't eat of this? Because God, I believe, was giving them a choice. Would they choose to obey God? Would they choose to love God and trust God enough, even when they didn't understand all of his plan, that they would be obedient to what he asks? As a parent, the way that I love you, for those of you who don't know, Dinah is my daughter. As a parent, I love you very much, and I want what's best for your life. And there are times where I can see that you're probably not going to make a wise decision, and sometimes I protect you from that. But as you keep getting older, I have to let you make more and more of your own decisions because you have to learn and decide things for yourself. And I'm nothing compared to God. And as much as I love you, it pales in comparison to the way that God loves you. But God loves us so much, and his desire is for us to love him back, that he lets us make our own choices. And this is the sad part, even when those choices hurt God. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, but it also means that they're separated from God. Adam and Eve are not the only ones who lose in this story. God suffers. God has pain and rejection as well. They chose a lie instead of God, but he loved them enough that he let them make that choice. Because otherwise, 
how could they really demonstrate their love? Otherwise, and this gets into a bigger concept of free will, how could they choose God if they never had a choice to choose something else? And this is an excellent question, which would take a long time to thoroughly unpack and answer. But for everybody who's listening, this comes to the crux of the matter, not only in this story, but in all of our stories and in our salvation. God loves us enough that he wants us to choose him. But by default, if we're going to choose him, it means we also have to have the option to reject him. All right. There you have it. Desi answered it in two minutes. That's impressive. Everybody, everybody should give him a hand because that is a thorny question coming both from the innocence of a child and the wisdom of an elder. And uh, yeah, Sister Betty Jones, I don't think you were asking that question to me in innocence. <laughs> no, but notice we all still ask that question. In fact, it's, in a, one of the, it's a tough question. It's a big, it's one of those big questions in life. Absolutely. And somebody else commented, it's not clear to me, but Somebody commented and said that they've been asking God about that since they were a child. And I agree. I have yelled at God many a time and said, this free will bit was a foolish choice on your part. Why did you ever do this? And uh, so it's, it's, that's at, that's at the core of it. Uh, Let me hop over to uh, another question, which is a little more um, uh, challenging as well, but I think you can handle this one from sister Lynn Dorsey. She think I can handle this one. Yeah, I think you can handle this one. So from, from uh, yeah. Sister Lynn. What is Sister Lynn's question? So the woman being deceived was in transgression, pulling from Paul's uh, reference back here to the Genesis account. And she says, this is a confusing phrase. Can you explain it? And uh, so I'll let you jump in there and, and uh, give it a go. Okay. I'm not sure I fully understood the question. Can you repeat it for me? I think what it is, is it's tied to uh, the passage in which Paul is speaking about that the woman being deceived was still in transgression. And it may be a translation question. In other words, if you remember off the top of your head, it's Timothy, I believe. Uh, Um, I'm trying to remember. We'll see how well he knows his verse references, folks. Dun, 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 dun. I'm cheating, but you don't know, as you see me looking over this. Oh, you're Googling. I already know you're Googling. Of course you're Googling. I'm I'm a little more precise than Google. I'm using Bible Gateway. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, Sister Lynn, I would have to look at. uh, I'm going to have to. I want to see it. As he's looking there, my my knee jerk answer, Lynn, would be um, that yes, probably it's First Timothy two fourteen. Correct. I wanted to make sure I got that. Let me read the verse. Issue. So let me read the verse here, and and, and you got to go to King James. King James, First Timothy two fourteen says, "And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression." So let's try reading that just in a couple other translations, just real quick. And this is an excellent example of why I advocate reading in multiple translations. So if we go to the New King James Version, it says it the same way. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. If we go to the New Living Translation, it says, the woman was deceived and sin was the result. If we go to the 
Net Bible, the New English translation, which tends to be a, a little bit more of a scholarly translation, it says, because she was fully because she was fully deceived, she fell into transgression. On the and then it's got a textual note saying an emphasis grammatically, it has an emphasis on the idea of continuing the consequences of that fall. In other words, the consequences of that transgression, that failure continued to affect us even to this day. The bigger question here, Sister Lynn, that Adam is trying, to, or excuse me, that Paul is pointing out in his contrast of Adam with Jesus in this first and second Adam is that Adam is defiant. Paul kind of gives Eve a little bit of a pass, if you will, because he says Adam knew what he was doing and he defied God. Edom, Eve was tricked in the Garden of Eden. Adam made a choice to disobey. And so it's Adam who bears the brunt and the blame for our fall into sin, not Eve. In Paul's theology, he's not making light of Eve. He's not trying to play Eve down as if she's less important. In Paul's theology, the consequences of sin rest squarely on Adam because he received the original instructions from God. And as I read earlier when we did that slow read, the serpent tricked Eve, and then she turned around and handed it to her husband, and Adam made the conscious choice to disobey. Is that fair? All right. Folks, we have run out of time, and I made a commitment because we could run these broadcasts very long. All right? And there, there's order, a lot of material here. Again, absolutely. we only got halfway through Genesis 3. Absolutely. And we will do better about getting off the ground next time. And uh, so have an extra five minutes or so. But here's good news. There's this little thing called email. You can email Brother Desi. His email is desi.lugo at newarkupc.org. So if you posted a question, I saw several of them. Jada, I'm sorry I didn't get to your question. Uh, Sister Harrington, Sister Carolyn, I saw that I didn't get to your question. There might be one or two others. If you will email them to him, and just so he doesn't feel uh, totally picked on in that. You can also copy me in that as well. Pastor at newarkupc.org. Pastor at newarkupc.org. That's right. And, and maybe we, collectively, we do, you know, I'll defer to the real theologian. No, you can send it to the <laughs> teacher, but I will be happy to weigh in along with him. That way he's not overwhelmed. But if you do have other questions that arise as you're studying this sure. passage, as you're engaging you with this know. topic this week, reach out to us. and You we can will, email it to us and, and we will do our best to try and respond. Absolutely. So it's been a pleasure to have you with us. Those of you that have small groups this week, encourage you, enjoy those tomorrow, tomorrow morning, tomorrow night. And Watch uh, that TED Talk. That's right. Watch that TED Talk. Ask Post something from website. your small group. Ask something that you want mm -hmm. from a small group member. Regina and I have already asked. We are asking for Mexican food, and we are getting it tomorrow night. Desi. Now you're just trying to make everybody jealous. Absolutely. I, and I'm not telling you who I'm getting it from, but you can all figure it out if you figure out who my small group is. But uh -huh. I'm getting Mexican food, and I cannot Authentic wait. Mexican food. Authentic right? Mexican yeah. food. It's going to be awesome. So reach Home out cook. to your small group. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. So as we say on all our broadcasts, thank you for being here. It's been a pleasure. We're so glad you joined us tonight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Join us every night. Mm -hmm. And until next time, good night, everybody. Have a good evening.